1996 was the year that Wade Grant graduated high school. It was also the year that the last residential school closed in Canada. At the time, Wade knew very little of this. Now, it's quite the opposite. He is a teacher, a leader, an advisor. Wade Grant currently serves as the Intergovernmental Affairs Officer to the Musqueam First Nation, while also serving as a board chair for the First Nations Health Council and New Relationship Trust. Prior to this, he spent three years with the BC Provincial Government as a special advisor on First Nations issues to the Premier. During our discussion, Wade and I chat about such a variety of things from education to family to culture. We discuss what needs to be done. He provides advice, education, and information about Musqueam, its people, and its land. I was honored to be able to speak with Wade Grant and learn from him. It was an informative and fun conversation, and I'm proud and excited to share that discussion with you today. I introduce Wade Grant on Rachel Bexton Connects. So today I'm really excited to have Wade Grant on the podcast. I've known Wade for several years. We worked together years ago. Uh, we collaborated uh, when I worked with the Musqueam Capital Corporation. And uh, I, it's just an honor to have him on the podcast to not only catch up and to share, you know, Wade's story uh, with you, but also to learn and be educated by by Wade Grant um, and what he has to provide to us as some Indigenous and some non, mostly non-Indigenous listeners. So welcome to Rachel Bexton Connects, Wade. Thank you for being here. Oh, thanks for having me, Rachel. It's my pleasure. Several things that I want to chat with you about today. But when I was at a recent event for the Taiyi, you did the land and cultural acknowledgement. And I tweeted about it. I don't know if you remember, but I just thought it was really well done. And you mentioned something that stuck with me and left me with questions that I'm going to ask you today. And you describe how you do not identify simply as an Indigenous man, but as Musqueam. So can you tell me why that's an important distinction, not only for you, but an important learning piece for those who are non-Indigenous people? Yeah, well, I mean, when you talk about Indigenous people, it, it puts uh, First Nations, uh, Inuit, Métis, uh, into one hom homogenous grouping of Indigenous people. When there are over 630 First Nations in Canada alone, each with their unique history, their culture, their languages, uh, ceremony and the Musqueam are just one of those 630 but we have had a lengthy um, time in what we now call Vancouver we say we have lived here since time immemorial which we say is that we cannot measure how long we've been here uh, carbon dating puts us in and around uh, metro Vancouver for over 9,000 years uh, our wow. people have lived here uh, for for that for for that long uh, unencumbered um, practicing the same uh, songs, dances, uh, fishing on the Fraser River, uh, still do that today. So for me, I'm a Musqueam band member uh, and a Musqueam member that uh, shares a unique history 
uh, that's different from any other First Nation in 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 Canada. Just like every other First Nation has their own unique history uh, and and uh, and culture. So for me, I I stand proud as a Musqueam band member that's uh, that's still living in and on their ter- the territory of our our ancestors. Well, that that makes sense. And so let me ask you this. And pardon the ignorance of my question, but I believe in asking all the questions to learn as much as possible. So if a non-Indigenous person is aware that someone is, say, Squamish or Musqueam or other, they would refer to them by their nation. But otherwise, if they are not aware or if they're speaking of multiple people, it's still okay to say Indigenous peoples in a plural. Yes. I'm, yeah, and I don't blame people for not understanding or not having the the knowledge of, of the distinctions between the, the local nations or nations across Canada uh, for many generations, uh, up until recently, uh, there was very few times where people were actually uh, given the opportunity to be educated about First Nations history, First Nations culture. Uh, when I went to high school myself, I didn't learn about Musqueam. I didn't learn about uh, Coast Salish people. I learned a little bit in grade 11 about prairie natives that lived in teepees. Oh That's really all the education that we got, right? And and um, so people formed their own opinions about First Nations, Indigenous peoples through what they see on television or in the movies. So, um, you know, for me, it's a, it's a uh, uh, it's not a disrespect if you call me an Indigenous person, uh, but, you know, there's an opportunity for me to to teach and to, for somebody to learn as well. Yes, and thank you for that. Um, and that all, all makes sense to me. Uh, regarding the land acknowledgement, and I don't know if this is something that is just personal to me, but... I kind of feel as though the land acknowledgement is important for sure, but that it's kind of become, you know, this minimal step that organizations or companies or, you know, you know, at at an event, there's always that land acknowledgement, but it seems to have become, you know, kind of just a standard that's at the beginning and not much meaning behind it, meaning that there's not much context. And I'm, I was counseled recently on adding to that by providing more of a cultural land acknowledgement to acknowledge, you know, what's happening on the land that we are acknowledging currently with, you know, the various injustices and such. What are your thoughts on the land acknowledgement and kind of expanding that some to, to bring more meaning and context to it? Yes, I mean, when I was growing up, we didn't have, have land, land acknowledgements. We didn't have the uh, the recognition of whose land or um, uh, where you were standing, I do think yes, it's it's um, the least that somebody can do. I I think that it has become sort of more of a um, something that people do because they're told to do it. Uh, if if it's their if it's their workplace or or whatnot, uh, I don't think people understand the actual significance of what they're saying. Sometimes I, I respect that they're 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 doing their best, but to be able to go out and learn a little bit about uh, the, those people who you're um, acknowledging. Uh, the land that you're acknowledging. Uh, one of my one of my biggest pet peeves is uh, when people do land acknowledgements. Is when they say I'm an uninvited guest on on the land of the Musqueam people. Um, and an uninvited guest is is uh, <laughs> is really just a trespasser. So why would you say that? Um, you know, it's uh, I, I'm my my grandparents both immigrated to Canada too, and uh, they they moved into our community and and became a part of the community. So I think you need to go a little bit step forward. I I see that not only in um in uh, everyday life, but you're you're starting to see that with uh, different levels of government where they're recognizing the 
um, the impacts of the past and trying to make amends. There's, uh, they're going a little bit farther and farther uh, each each day, each year. Uh, you know, recently Musqueam uh, lobbied successfully to um, remove the name of Trutch, Joseph Trutch, as one of the streets in Vancouver because Joseph Trutch was a very racist uh, um, governor uh, British Columbia uh, who looked at First Nations people as nothing more than beasts of the of the wilderness. Uh, and uh, we had we named a street after him. So Musqueam asked, uh, and uh, for the previous uh, city council, they approved the name to be changed, and uh, th those street signs should be going up this this year. And the new name of that of Trutch Street is going to be Musqueam View Street, which is really you know taking that next step of not just acknowledging the land like you're saying, but acknowledging that there is the people are still here, and they 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 have a an opportunity to be recognized as well. So uh, those are those are steps that are are, are really. Um, making um, a positive impact in our community. Yes. Wow, that's amazing. Congratulations on on passing that through successfully. When will the street signs go up? Do you know? Um, I, I heard that there, I talked to my uncle Larry, who is the um, the language guru down here in Muskie of our, of our language, and he said that uh, it should be this, this year sometime. It's just uh, they're in the signage, um, printing of the signages right now. Fantastic. Well, that well, that's good news. Yeah. I know that you have... Uh, Wade, from from just knowing knowing you from from the past, uh, that you have a, an interesting cultural background. So I just wanted you to share that with uh, the listeners uh, from your mother's and father's side, and just uh, tell us a little bit about your cultural background on both your mother and father's side. Yes, um, on my mother's side, my mother uh, is the daughter of of Willard Sparrow, who was the chief of Musqueam, and her her mother was. Uh, Helen uh, Sparrow, her her maiden name was um, uh, Malcolm, and my my grandmother Helen uh, is not Muslim. She's actually the daughter of immigrants from Norway, uh, and lived um, most of her her childhood and her youth in Steveston, where she met my grandfather. Uh, they were the very first Musqueam uh, people. To, one, one of the not, not I can't say the very first because I, I don't have proof of that, but they were one of the very first intermarriage uh, couples in Musqueam, where the uh, my grandmother came and lived in our community. Uh, they had 10 children and uh, raised them, uh, um, my mother being the oldest of them. Uh, so my grandmother lived on the reserve since uh, since the 1940s, all the way up till uh, when she passed about six years ago. Uh, so we, uh, I have the um, uh, the privilege of being uh, uh, the, the grandson of a former chief and a Norwegian uh, immigrant on my father's side. My father's mother was a, a Musqueam band member. Her name was Agnes Grant. And my father's father... Uh, immigrated from southern China in the 1920s. His name was Hong Tim Hing. Uh, he took on the English name of Gordon Hong. He came in looking for a better life, of course, uh, in the 1920s, being a Chinese immigrant. Uh, it was very difficult times. So he had to pay the head tax and uh, had difficulty finding work uh, to be able to support his family back in China. So he found work down in Musqueam, where a lot of our land had been uh, leased out for to Chinese Immigrants to to uh, to farm and to uh, to grow a number of different vegetables, which they would take downtown to Chinatown and other places to sell. And when my grandfather moved uh, to Musqueam, he uh, saw a uh, a young Musqueam uh, woman, and they fell in love. They had four children. My father being the youngest of four. My da father, uh, Howard Grant. They were after my my actual uh, last name. Up until just before I was born was Hong. We were the Hong family up until 1977, I believe. Uh, and my father's uh, father passed when my dad was 10, so I never got to meet him. But my father has always 
um, okay. made sure that we were proud not only of being of, uh, of Musqueam descent, but of being Chinese descent as well, uh, Chinese Canadians. So uh, about 10 years ago, we for the first time we went back and uh, visited my my grandfather's village, which was an amazing uh, amazing opportunity to meet our family in China. So I like to say that um, you know uh, what, what Canada is looking like more and more is running through my blood because I have uh, I have the um, uh, the pleasure of being a Musqueam band member, um, a descendant of a of a European immigrant, and a descendant of a uh, a Chinese immigrant. Yes. Wow. Uh, you have a lot a lot to teach and a lot to share. I think that you're. Uh, Two young children, uh, two I guess teen children now, will grow up with a lot of knowledge, especially a lot of cultural and historical knowledge uh, from your teaching. So they're fortunate to to have that. One thing I like to share about my visit back to China uh, in the 2013 is um, we went back there, and it's a small village outside of Zhongshan, uh, China. It's a very very uh, small village. It's called Saimun, and we went and. Um, we went to visit them. I never met them in my life. Never knew who they were. My, I met my father, my grandfather's brother, and, and aunts and cousins. And they took me into the back room of a of a house, and they opened up a cabinet and they started showing me um, picture albums and showing me pictures. And I started flipping through them. And I guess they, you know, somebody had been sending them pictures because my they had pictures of my dad when my dad was younger and my aunts and uncles. And I kept flipping through them. And I came to like the near the end, and they had pictures of my son Eli and my daughter Isla in their picture oh, album in the wow. small cabinet in Saimun, China that I, I never so somebody in our family I reckon you know knowing how important family was was sending pictures of all our family back and it was just you know so mind-blowing to see my kids pictures in these in these picture albums wow that that's amazing I yeah. I know we didn't we didn't discuss this, but just after sharing that story I had a question for you about family and I, I've always gotten the impression just you know being on um, you know, being at Musqueam, uh, being around uh, and at cultural ceremonies, uh, that there really is uh, a tremendous value put on family. Uh, whereas in kind of mainstream, I don't know what you would call mainstream culture anymore, we're very diverse in BC. Um, but in, I suppose, the Caucasian culture, uh, family, you know, sadly seems to kind of sometimes scatter. And I know that that happens everywhere. But would you agree that there's, you know, an especially strong focus on family um, and, and even like, you know, not not just immediate family, but even far removed family? Absolutely. You know, I, I, I think that uh, family and extended family was a, a very important part of our culture. We didn't live in single family homes before colonization. Um, we lived in longhouses where your your grandmothers, your aunts, your uncles, we all lived in the same house. We were a matrilineal society where um, the, the mothers and the grandmas were the, the bosses and made the decisions for for our, our, our family, and uh, we still hold our matriarchs in high regard. And you know, the advent of, of colonialism, uh, although how 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 difficult and and horrendous uh, things things got for First Nations, I think it created the opportunity to strengthen the bonds of family, not just the uh, immediate family of mother and father, but aunts and uncles, and and sharing the the burden of colonialism and being able to overcome it together to to show that the strength is in the family, so the strength in the connection to who you are as a Musqueam person, or not even just Musqueam. You know, I, I, my, some of my my closest relatives are my cousins from 
uh, Chimanis or or my cousins from from uh, from Chilliwack, and I call I call them aunts and uncles. They're you know they're older they're older cousins. They're not my actual aunts and uncles, but because they're held in such high regard and high esteem that they they are like your aunts and uncles because they just have just as much influence and and uh, and and whatnot to how you grow up as a as a person that they are. Uh, just as important as your your aunt, your uncle, your mom and dad. So, you know, colonialism, um, you know, brought in a lot of pain, a lot of suffering, but it, it allowed the families to be stronger to say that, you know, we're we're stronger than this and we need to to come together to ensure the next generation, uh, you know, is better off. And I, and I, I still see that today when we, we gather in the longhouses. Everybody uh, is an equal as we walk into the, the cultural ceremonies. Wow, that's it's definitely vital, especially now. I think I know so many feel lonely, isolation. Um, so that you know, really strong connection uh, to family, and you know, understanding, discussing, and celebrating you know the heritage and cultures of the family on a, on a regular basis is something that I wish, I wish that my culture and my family did. So um, that's that's pretty special. Yeah, it, growing up on Indian Reserve, I recognize why I grew up on Indian Reserve. I I, I recognize that uh, you know colonialistic practices took us off our, our our land, but put us on these small postage stamp pieces of of property that we call reservations. Uh, however, you know it allows me to live uh, two minutes away from my mother and three minutes away from my father. I, I can walk uh, five minutes and be at my sister's house and my brother's house. So, uh, you know, we we have that connection from the day we're born until. Uh, I'm going to be living here till the day I die. So it's it's a connection that will be with me uh, okay. uh, far into the future. I wanted to ask you about your, I suppose your official role. I mean, you've had you've had many uh, governing and government related roles, but you're currently uh, the intergovernmental affairs officer to the Musqueam First Nation. And I'm wondering what that job entails and and what it means to you. Well, uh, you know, I was on council. I was an elected councillor for for Musqueam for ten years. Uh, I, I I served uh, four terms, four terms in, in on Musqueam Chief and Council. And after, um, after I was done, I was asked to come work in the Premier's office of British Columbia to help as the uh, Indigenous advisor, which allowed me to create a lot of. Um, uh, it gave me a lot of uh, experience, but also create a lot of uh, relationships that I feel are are very important as uh, for Musqueam and other First Nations uh, when it comes to to um, negotiating with with different levels of government, etc. Uh, so my uh, I'm bringing my experience outside of my community, which I always said I would, and bringing it back to Musqueam uh, to ensure that Musqueam is um, you know at, at the forefront of um, of negotiating their their self-government negotiating title and rights negotiating um property to be returned to them and the relationships with different levels of government is a very important one um for that to to, to take place successfully so uh, i am working with our chief and council to ensure that we are sitting in the right rooms with the right people to uh, successfully negotiate uh, uh uh, uh, all of these agreements that Musqueam is um, is moving forward with, uh, so that the chief and the, uh, and the councillors are able to to negotiate uh, in the best interests of all the community members. So, you know, uh, on a daily basis, I'll have uh, five, six, seven meetings uh, to ensure that uh, our our chief and council are as up to date as possible on what's going on in and around our territory, so that uh, 
that um, you know we don't have what happened to us in the past where um, shady dealings were done um, negotiating some of our land away and ensure that Musqueam is at the forefront of of um, um, revitalizing our, our history and our in our territory. Okay, well, that's very valuable. Government is a very challenging and can sometimes be a difficult space to navigate. So having that expertise is very valuable for, for your councils. It's amazing. Tell me about uh, Musqueam culture. I, I learned yeah. about it uh, some when I was working with you, but what are a couple of traditions related to the Musqueam culture? You mentioned a couple at the beginning of our conversation um, that are important to you personally and that maybe you enjoy with your family or that ones that stand out to you. I always introduce myself when I speak as Wade Grant, but the traditional name that I have is Tsaulak Walano. Uh, and I wasn't given that name at birth. I was given that name when I was 15 years old at the Longhouse in the Musqueam community. If you come down here, the Longhouse still stands where it stood uh, for over half of a century. And that is our place of um, where our cultural practices take place. We say it's, it's our university. It's where people uh, come to learn about, about who we are. 1993, my family held a, a gathering where we held a, um, uh, where we invited hundreds of people to come to witness the, the bestowing of a name on myself and my, my cousins and my, and my brother, where I got the name Salakwalano. So uh, I feel that it's important to, to me to, to pass that on to my, my, uh, my children and my children's children, because, uh, you know, my elders, my ancestors, my grandmother, my grandfather, my grandfather, uh, they went through so much to protect and to ensure that those ceremonies were passed on to the next generation. Uh, you know, the potlatch ban, residential schools, they were all um, tools to try to assimilate us, to try to, try to destroy our culture, to try to destroy our heritage. Uh, and they were, and they failed because uh, our culture is just as strong today as it, as it was, as it ever has been. Uh, so one of the most uh, proud moments I had in the last uh, little while was last year. Uh, my my children, I bestowed their our Musqueam name on them, uh, where we in, uh, invited hundreds of people from across Coast Salish territory uh, to witness their names, Queen Tanat and Quinatol. Um, my daughter, Queen Tanat, my my son, Quinatol. Um, yeah, so we had hundreds of people. But the thing is, is that uh, another important part of of that government to government relationship is to, for governments to understand that our history and our culture isn't just songs and dances. What happens in there was our traditional forms of governance. So when you see the, those those practices, you're seeing the laws being passed down. You're seeing the rules that were put in place millennia ago, still strong today. So what we did is we invited uh, the Premier of British Columbia, the Mayor of uh, Vancouver, uh, the a leader of the opposition in British Columbia, um, uh, the former Minister of um, Indigenous Relations federally, they all came and they sat at, in the Longhouse and watched my kids get their names because we wanted them to understand uh, it was not just about ceremony, it's about those laws. And you know, if you think 100 years ago, if we gathered that way, those same people, the Premier, the federal government, uh, they had outlawed us from doing that. So how far we've come where we're now having these these heads of uh, of government coming to witness our ceremonies and our laws when 100 years ago they tried to uh, put us in jail for doing that it was a proud moment for me as a as a Muslim person to to see my kids uh, standing on the floor with uh, those people in, in attendance i bet i bet i was just going to ask you that if that was a proud moment for you uh to have them there that's that's amazing i think what you said is is really uh impactful and that is that the history 
in the culture is not just about songs and dances, but also the governance and, you know, the laws and the society in which um, you ran and governed in, in the ways in which you saw fit. It's very interesting. And there's just, I feel as though the learning, and that leads to my next question, is uh, what we as non-Indigenous people have learned is so minimal, um, even as adults. Uh, unless we have sought out for a very long time extensive knowledge, uh, we just we know so little, and that seems uh, that needs to change. So that does lead to my question about education. Uh, I know it's improved in the schools. So I have a, a first grader and a fifth grader, and they come home and they tell me some things that I was never taught in school. So it's good to see some things about Indigenous people history and different days that they celebrate, but those seem minimal as well. Uh, I still feel as though there's not enough there and that it's important for our children and youth and the next generations to to have more knowledge than someone like me has and learned about uh, Indigenous people here in BC and beyond. Uh, do you agree? And what do you feel this should look like within the schools with the public school system and educating our children and youth. Yeah, no, I 100% agree. And when people, uh, I'll take you back a few years ago, uh, when the discovery of the 215 in, in Kamloops uh, happened, um, and people came up to me and they're like, I, I had no idea this happened. I'm so sorry for your your community. I had never didn't know Canada that did this. And I would say to them, you have no, you know, you have don't have to be sorry. It's not your fault you didn't learn this. It's not anybody's fault. It's our our school system. Our education system has failed us. You know, I didn't even know about residential schools when I was growing up. I didn't know that the last residential school closed in uh, in 1996, the year I graduated high school. I had to learn it when I went to um, uh, university because my parents and my grandparents, they didn't talk about it because it was too too dark of a, a chapter uh, for them. So I didn't even know about these things. And I keep, came to realize that, you know, the, the education system not only failed myself, but it fails it's, it's failed generations of, of people to understand who Indigenous people are. Who First Nations people are, and and uh, for people to, to to realize that we're still here, like a lot of people. If you take a, a survey right now, I'm guessing uh, of 100 people in Vancouver, 95 of them, 95 percent of them couldn't point where Musqueam is on a map. Uh, they, you know, people say, "Well, there's a reserve in Vancouver." Well, that's because the education system is, is has failed us. The people that I have a strong relationship now that are still the biggest allies that I have. Uh, when it comes to Indigenous rights or Musqueam rights, are the kids that I played with that came down to the reserve and learned about our culture, learned about. So I still have many, many high school and elementary school friends who still stand up and speak, you know, for Musqueam because they got to learn about who we are because they didn't get learn to learn about it in the in the textbooks, um, you know. And the, so the majority of people get get their education from movies, from television, or thirty second clips about about uh and it's always the the bad news and and whatnot but there's so much good news that, that we need to share and when it comes to the education system there is you know there have been strides there have been strides to to implement a, a better curriculum but i think that you know especially in in vancouver and, and other areas of of uh of canada uh you know to be able to cater that education to the local first nation uh to to be able to say you know what uh in our grade 10 social studies when we're talking about first nations history you should be talking about if you're at Point Grey Secondary, where we want to. You should be teaching the history of the Musqueam people, like of Kayapalano, or or, or learning about uh, the Longhouse system, or or, or um, learning about uh, how we first met Captain Narvez in the late 1700s. 
uh, it shouldn't be this pan-Indian approach where we're all one, because like I said, we're not. There's 630 of us. So to be able to educate um, uh, children at the, at the earliest age because they want to learn. And, I'll, and I always end with the story is that, it, you know, the kids want to learn because I, I realized that when the, the day after the 215 happened, my kids went to school, they wore their orange shirts. I went to pick up my son. Uh, he had two of his friends who uh, live on the west side of Vancouver. They came in, they had their orange shirts on. And I asked them how, what they did. And they said, well, you know, we had, a, we had a, um, an assembly and we talked about this. And I said, well, that's good. And the, one of the kids looked at me, he goes, no, Mr. Grant, it's not. And he, I, go, I looked at him, I'm curious, I said, why is it not good? He goes, because it's not good enough. We should, be, we should be learning about this more and more. Wow. And so for me, that really, you know, struck a chord with me that the gener next generation and at that age, they want to learn this. And we gotta, we've got to, uh, you know, take advantage of that when it's happening. So, um, you know, we're making strides, we're taking steps forward, but, uh, you know, we, we can do a lot more as well. Yes. And what do you think about, I was recently speaking with um, an Indigenous client and the group shared something with me that I thought was quite meaningful. And that was that, you know, often when uh, Indigenous teaching, teaching about history or culture is happening, it is not a Squamish or Musqueam or Cree person teaching. What do you think about uh, the importance of having an Indigenous person doing those teachings and being involved in teaching the history that is theirs alone. Sorry, um, I, you know, I feel that it, it is important that uh, Indigenous person that has grounded and been raised in their, in their teachings, in their, in their culture, in their, in the Longhouse. There are so many people that, you know, uh, they may not have gone to university, but they have a wealth of knowledge that can be shared uh, with with the greater with the greater population. There are people that have. Uh, you know, that have been taught by our elders, our ancestors uh, to to practice our culture, and they should be uh, the ones that are that are at the forefront to ensure that that that, uh, that teaching is passed on, not only in, in Musqueam, but to those that want to learn, those that are um, engaged into um, engaged in our communities. Uh, having said that, though, there are people and uh, one of my closest friends who lives down the street here. Um, uh, he has been welcomed into our community. Uh, I think Mus Musqueam people will say he's a Musqueam person. He's learned our language. He's, um, he's, um, he, he speaks our language. He's our, um, uh, you know, one of our historians now, but he is a 30, almost 40 year old Caucasian man from Northern Michigan, uh, named Jason, who is, uh, you know, who has embraced our culture. Uh, so he's a person that, you know, Musqueam people would say, you can go talk with him because he's respected our language. He's respected our culture. He's learned it because he's learned it the right way by coming to our community, coming to learn it from our our our, our elders. And he sat here for the last 15 years um, learning that. And he speaks the language better than I can speak it. So uh, there are certain people that if they do it the right way, I, I, I think that they, they have the opportunity to, you know, be embraced and, and welcomed to the community to be one, one of us. Yeah, so that that was actually I was going to ask you about uh, teaching when it came to adults. Um, do you feel the average non-indigenous person has a sincere desire to learn about the history uh, and the realities and the current, you know, uh, injustices and the current celebrations and customs? Um, and for those who do genuinely want to learn, what is your advice on the best ways to do so? I mean, when my son asks me a question and I can't answer it, I, I feel ashamed. I feel embarrassed. 
Well, that's the thing is that people shouldn't feel ashamed and embarrassed uh, to ask the questions like you're saying is that that's the only way that we are going to learn. And like I, I said earlier, is that you shouldn't feel ashamed or embarrassed because it's not your fault that you didn't learn these types of things. So the best way possible is to, you know, for me, I, I host um, delegations down to Muspium. I do a tour uh, of our community, uh, walking, walking people through our community. And yes, I think there the a lot of people, uh, I don't know how, how many, but there are a lot of people that genuinely want to learn what they were not taught uh, in in the schools, or what they were not taught by their their family, because they um, you know they they um, they quickly realized that what they were taught was was uh, was wrong, and and to be able to have an opportunity to come down to Musqueam, we're right here. I'm a I'm a person that's always open to to going for a walk through a community with somebody that wants to to learn. So uh, for me, that's that's the best way is that you know you just pick up the phone and and give me a call or or be able to just um, you know make that that take that initiative to try to to get somebody to ask that question. And if you don't find the answer, just keep keep asking it because so many more opportunities now than there were 30 years ago. Uh, to be able to come and uh, come and meet people in Musqueam, we have many different uh, events that are open to the public, uh, and um, continuing to to play our role in reconciliation uh, by sharing who we are. Well, I would strongly recommend anyone who's listening to take Wade's advice and offer. I've taken that walk, although it's been uh, several years. I'd love to do it again. Uh, Around Musqueam, uh, Wade showed me various things and educated me on uh, the land in which he lives, um, the culture. Uh, I think at that time, um, the salmon um, were spawning or jumping at that time. I can't remember what season it was. It was in the fall. It was in the fall. Yeah, we still have salmon coming up our streams to spawn in the fall. Amazing. So take Wade's advice. Go down there, learn um you're you're gonna learn from the best wade uh as you can tell um has the information and and lives it and walks the walks the talk (laughs) um so for your work with the first nations health council again you know the negative news is what what we see and we want to see more positive in the news because there is also a lot of positive uh but there seems to be regular news on injustices and you know discriminatory treatment of Indigenous patients in Canadian healthcare facilities. So tell me more about your role with the First Nations Health Council um, and what you do there, what they do, thoughts on improving some of the discriminatory practice that's happening in healthcare. Um, so the First Nations Health Council is a body of 15 uh, people who are um, who are elected by chiefs uh, across British Columbia. I'm the chair of the health council. So we are the political uh, advocacy body uh, for chiefs and leaders, uh, we don't uh, we don't make any decisions without uh, uh, without the chiefs and leaders. It's there. It's they're the decision makers, but we are the advocacy body to to talk about health and and wellness in British Columbia uh, for for First Nations for the um, 203 First Nations in British Columbia. I represent uh, the Vancouver Coastal Region, the South Coast, um, and so what we what we um, what we're we're seeing now is the the um, the want and the willingness for First Nations to um, to take a hold of the health and wellness of the of the their people in their communities. And ha- having said that, it's not just about the Western medicine; it's about reconnecting with traditional forms of wellness, traditional forms of of health. Uh, you know, it's not just about uh, medicine and, and surgeries; it's about um, the social determinants of health, which what leads to a good, uh, healthy. 
healthy life is, uh, you know, the connection to who you are as an Indigenous person, connection to the land, connection to the water, connection to ceremony, uh, seeing that, you know, you should, we're proud to, to be who we are and, and, and incorporating that into the healthy living, healthy lifestyles. You know, we have the Western forms of medicine, we have the traditional forms of medicine. They don't have to be mutually exclusive. They can, they can walk together. And we're seeing that when kids uh, as young as uh, five, six, seven, come together and and perform in, in dance or they're they're rowing their the canoes on the river uh they're having much more success in school they're having much more success in in, in providing a, a um a stronger uh, sense of of self-esteem to head off those disprove those those theories about who first nations people are uh, yes and we still do see the discriminatory practices in our hospitals uh you know most recently uh, the uh, in Plain Sight report came out, uh, which addressed the uh, racist practices in emergency rooms that we're seeing across uh, British Columbia, where uh, doctors and nurses were playing games, guessing the blood alcohol content of a nurse, a First Nations person in, um, that came to them for in their time of emergency. Uh, so we do still see racism, but that's once again, I, I don't, you know, I don't think that a, a doctor or a nurse just becomes racist when they become a doctor or a nurse. It, it's something that's built up from when you're young and not learning who these people are. So, you know, if we could cut, nip it in the bud when they're young to educate people, um, you know, people aren't born racist, uh, they, they, they learn it. And uh, once it gets to a certain point in your life, it's too late to turn back because you have those uh, preformed ideas of who people are. So uh, for us, it's about fighting that. It's about fighting, fighting back and showing that, uh, you know, our forms of, of health and, and wellness are just as equal, if not more uh, successful mm -hmm. for our people. Yeah, that's that's interesting. What do you is there a name for a person within your community who would be responsible for um, health traditional medicine? Ah, we don't ha have a name really. Well, I mean, there's knowledge keepers and elders that uh, we look to. Uh, there's a, there's a few uh, people who are heads of family that uh, that we go to when we want a traditional healing ceremony and whatnot. But uh, um, we don't have a name. I, I don't have a name for them. I just I, I just call up my aunt who does that and say, can you come in and, and do the ceremony for us? So okay. um, knowledge keepers um, are, are very important for us. So even more important to, to pass on and, and educate the younger generation so that they can become future knowledge keepers. Absolutely. And the thing is, is that you know, um, these people are, are doing it out of the kindness of their heart. They are, they, they, you know, they don't get paid to do these types of things, even though they are one of the, if not the most important, um, you know, cultural leaders in our community, uh, they're doing it because it was, uh, it was given to them by their, by their elders to, to pass it on. So uh, we do have some young people in our community that are taking up the, the torch and, and learning from these people as well. Amazing. Uh, before taking on the role, and you referenced it, uh, that you currently have, uh, you spent three years with the BC provincial government as a special advisor on First Nation issues uh, to the Premier. Um, very, very important job, um, I would think. Uh, where you convened groups to talk with the province about unresolved issues with the BC First Nations. Um, I would think that would be quite an experience and I would just love to hear about what it was like for you um, and is there still you know much work to be done there yeah no it was it was an honor to do that uh, because uh, you know I'd, I'd worked with uh, the BC Assembly of First Nations before that so I knew a lot of the chiefs and leaders who um, you know rightfully so were still frustrated and are still are frustrated with uh, 
uh, the pace that uh, negotiations go on and, uh, you know, how government um, uh, treats them, those types of things. So, it was, you know, it was really an honor to be able to, you know, try to mend some of those, those, uh, those fences that had been, had been broken. Um, you know, sometimes uh, people don't realize how unique Bank British Columbia is when it comes to uh, First Nations and government, because uh, for the majority of this province, uh, except for a small little bit up in Northeast and small little bit down South Vancouver Island, no treaties were ever signed. Uh, there was no war that ever broke out, uh, no uh, negotiation for land to be handed over. We were just taken off of our land and put on reserves. Um, and for, for many, many generations, we, we lived there under the thumb of, of the crown. But uh, as uh, as our elders and our, our, our previous generations still fought the, fought the good fight, we started to, to notice that the, uh, the tide was turning. We, we used Western law to, to prove that we have rights in this country. Section 35 of the Constitution um, recognizes and affirms Aboriginal rights, and uh, Musqueam was the very first one to test uh, test that. What does an Aboriginal right mean in Canada with the Sparrow case, uh, uh, where we went out fishing uh, to during closed season to, say, to show that we still had the right to fish, and the Supreme Court of Canada um, sided with Musqueam, and we, we are one of the only uh, First Nations that has a proven Aboriginal right to fish in the in the uh, the Fraser River, so the negotiation is to is uh, that's going on with First Nations is about that uh, that unanswered land question uh, that that we're seeing. So um, there are um, many many layers to that when it comes to to, to government, the Crown, be, both being the British Columbia and Canada. But uh, there are leaders that are that are coming up, up and coming leaders that are educated that want to uh, find a positive path forward. And it was about bringing those those like-minded together uh, to to solve different issues, uh, you know, and, you know, uh, some some I was successful in, in accomplishing and others I wish I had a second uh, kick at the can. But I think we are on the right track with uh, with how we're dealing with Indigenous populations, First Nations governments in, in this province. Uh, we have come a long way since my mother was chief in the 1980s to, to today. So... Um, there's there's some good positive um, relationships that reconciliation has has brought about, and reconciliation I always say is a, is a two way street as well. We um, on my side as an indigenous person, I have to play uh, a part in that in reconciling uh, the the relationship that was uh, fractured for so many years. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about reconciliation. It's a word that is used a lot, um, and I think people kind of lose touch with what it means. And I think that uh, there perhaps are different meanings for different people, but what does reconciliation mean for you? Wade, and you, you mentioned it, you know, needs to be a two-way street. Uh, what does it mean for you? And also how do you not let uh, frustration, uh, perhaps emotion, heavy emotion around what's taking place, um, you know, get in the way of your intelligence and your ability to, to move things forward? Uh, well, first of all, you know, I, I don't really, I shouldn't, I, I don't really use the word reconciliation myself, uh, because I think it's a misnomer in the sense that reconciliation on its very uh, face um, makes it look that there was a relationship in the past to reconcile. 
because there was no relationship between musketry and government. We were just taken off the land and put onto a, a reserve. So for me, it's about relationship building. It's about creating a new relationship that's never been there before. Uh, and, you know, for me, I'm a person that is, I always say that, um, uh, I know it's a cliche, I always say the, the glass is half full, it's never half empty, and I want to do my best to make sure that we fill the rest of the glass up, uh, to make sure that we all have uh, an opportunity to sip out of the glass, because uh, I look at my grandfather who came here looking for a better life, he saw Canada as a place that... Uh, that he could find that better life. He probably didn't find it, but there was an aspiration there. There was an aspiration for him and his family to be in a better place. And I think that that's what drives me is that I want to aspire to create this, uh, create this city, this province and this country into what my grandfather and my grandmother uh, saw or what they hoped that their children would see. So I know we, we're still not um, where they, they, they'd want to be, but I know that I'm, I'm putting another stepping stone for my children to step and be a little bit far, further ahead for me. So that's not really, that's really what drives me. Uh, of course, there's frustration sometimes. I can be angry. I can be upset about what happened in the past. And I have been, I, you know, I, I'm upset about residential schools. I'm upset about what my, 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 my grandmother had to go through being an Indigenous woman. But I don't have to be vengeful. To 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 um to solve something, I can take those opportunities for for other people to learn to see. Look, this is why we hurt so much, and this is what we can do to to heal. You know, we have intergenerational trauma that still still um is rampant in our communities, and now it's about creating that intergenerational healing so that our children and our grandchildren don't have to have that passed on to them. So that's what drives me. That's what makes me want to create a better future. Well, I agree with what you said about reconciliation. It really doesn't make much sense, does it, um, to use that term? Uh, and I wonder if that will be changed, if that terminology will and should be changed. That's something that I think we should think about. I don't think many of us would ever have thought that. So thank you for sharing that. Uh, you have been honored, uh, Wade, for your work in the community uh, and for your work uh, between, you do a lot of work uh, assisting Musqueam and your community uh, with relations with the government and governing bodies. Uh, you were honored as BC Business Magazine's, on BC Business Magazine's Power 50 list, and you received the prestigious Queen's Diamond Jubilee Medal for service in the community. Uh, I'm sure that these were nice honors for you, um, but what were they meaningful to you and what kind of honor would be the most meaningful for you to achieve personally? Um, you know, I, uh, I know it's a hard question. <laughs> no, it's, it's, it, it, it's, uh, I, I'm, of course, of course I'm honored when, when, when somebody presents me with a, an award or something, but I'm not honored because of, of what I've done. I'm honored because um, I'm honored because it's my parents and my grandparents that have put me here. I stand on their shoulders, and it's it's because of them that uh, that those those honors are bestowed. I wouldn't do what I do without the uh, you know the guidance that my parents, my aunts, my uncles, my my cousins ha had given to me. So I share that with with them all. 
because I'm doing it for for not only for them, not only for um, my community, but I always say that what the work that I do isn't about what I'm doing for me. It's what I'm doing for my kids, what I'm doing for my grandkids, because I hope that what I do is something that is going to change the the uh, the world for the better, so that they they're in a better place. I always say I do two. I do it for two different populations. I do it for my children, and I do it for those that have gone before me, those who have passed, because. Um, if I didn't do what I'm doing today, if I didn't, uh, you know, continue on with the the conversations that I'm having to do, every battle that my grandmother went through, every fight that my grandfather went through would have been in vain because that that would have ended with them. So for me, the the awards are 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 nice there, but but they are for my my aunts and my uncles. So um, just you know what, the biggest honor is when my mom and my dad give me a hug and say, "I'm proud of you, son." that's the biggest honor for me. Yeah, no, that's, that's meaningful. And uh, I think what that young boy that you described learned, probably partially from being friends with your son, um, about the fact that he's not learning enough, um, you know, comes from what you've taught your son comes from what you've learned, you know, and it's, uh, those are also uh, huge honors. So that makes sense to me. I seem uh, to remember that you love baseball and um, my husband loves baseball. A lot of people in this city love baseball and we've talked about this and I want to know if you have any thoughts about whether or not Vancouver will have a major league baseball team. And this has absolutely nothing to do with you as a, a Musqueam person or uh, the history or culture, but uh, just a random question that I wanted to get some insight on. Any ideas, any thoughts? I would love it. I mean, I think that Vancouver and, and the Lower Mainland are, are very, you know, supportive baseball baseball community. You see that every year when the Blue Jays are down in, in Seattle. They're, they're pretty much sold out with Blue Jays fans that come down from British Columbia and, and elsewhere. Uh, you know, I uh, I always harken back to the the days of the Grizzlies, and uh, I love the Grizzlies here. I just I, I I would love for I would love for it to happen, and if if it did, I would be the first person in line um, uh, for season tickets. I'm I, I'm a uh, I don't know if you remember. I'm a I'm a Red Sox fan though because um, I, I was uh, I was I was eight years old, <laughs> and I was watching the World Series between the Mets and the uh, and the Red Sox, and their third baseman was Wade Boggs, and that was the first time I ever heard anybody else famous named Wade. So that was that's what really got my uh, my juices flowing for for baseball, and ever since then, and you know I'm proud. My daughter plays baseball. Oh, does um, she? Yeah. Well, she's taken the year off, um, and um, she's pursuing volleyball now. So. But uh, we uh, we go down. We've gone to a couple of baseball games together, my daughter and me. So I would I would love it. I would love it. I um I I'm but I don't know if 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 it would happen. Yeah, I hope so. I mean, a lot of uh, a lot of the biggest you know baseball stars that are coming out of Canada are coming from British Columbia. So hopefully that shines a, a bigger light on the province and uh, we get a team here. I think it would me do too. really well if it did land in Vancouver. So <laughs> fingers crossed. I know that you're a board man and member at Covenant House Vancouver, uh, amazing nonprofit. Uh, why did you choose to be on the board here, and why is it important, meaningful to you? Uh, Covenant House Vancouver, you know, provides a space for uh, homeless and at-risk youth in um, in Vancouver and in other places across North America. Uh, for me, growing up, I was lucky enough to have a a, a stable family where my parents were were married and. 
uh, they raised us and we had a home to go to, but I did have cousins and, and others uh, in my community that uh, became became homeless and we'd have to go. I remember being a young kid going out uh, looking down, uh, downtown for my cousin who hadn't been seen for days and, and whatnot and, and knowing that, um, that uh, First Nations people are um, vastly outnumbered outnumbered per capita when it comes to homelessness in, in Vancouver and that does that translates over to the youth too. Uh, we make up uh, under five percent of the population, and over thirty percent of the of the of those youth that come through the doors at Covenant House are, are Indigenous. So for me, seeing you know seeing that and and wanting to to play a part in in finding um, a better life for 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 those youth that that seek that that seek that is 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 something that was a no brainer for me. Is that you know I see my I see my cousins and and some of them uh, never came home. Uh, but some of them are home now, and they're and they're thriving because they were able to. Uh, I don't know if they went to Covenant House, but they were able to to find places where they felt safe, and uh, to be able to to be a part, a small part of a an organization that provides safety and security for those kids that are could be hundreds of miles away from their home and their and their families is is something that uh, I think anybody uh, would want to be a part of. So that's why I you know I. Uh, I would, yeah, it's I it's amazing how many of my guests, uh, when I ask them, they're, they're two top nonprofits they'd love to talk about. Many of them mentioned Covenant House. It's definitely one that I think is close to uh, a lot of hearts for, for obvious reasons. So so I understand that. Um, so then, then leading to that question, uh, for your uh, two nonprofits that are close to your heart, a Covenant House, I assume, would be would be one for sure. Yeah. Is there another that you'd like to share? Uh, the New Relationship Trust is a, another one. I, I I sit on the board there too. But the New Relationship Trust is a an organization, a nonprofit organization that is um, you know uh, provides funding for First Nations to uh, build their governance structures back up. And a, an important part of building governance, and an important part of strengthening communities, is education. And we give out, uh, we provide uh, scholarships to First Nations youth going to universities and other um, higher learning facilities. And so that's uh, one that's really near and dear to me, my heart because I've seen so many um, youth go through that and get the scholarships from the Relationship Trust are now, you know, successful doctors, they're successful lawyers. Some are now chiefs of their of their community making positive change in their communities. So for me to be able to see the seeds being planted 10 years ago and now they're blossoming uh, 10 years later, it, it's something that really makes me smile and want to continue on with that. So uh, I would say the new relationship trust is 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 the other one that I'm I'm really proud to to be associated with. Excellent. Well, I'll make sure to link to both uh, New Relationship Trust and Covenant House uh, when the episode comes up. Wade, I would love to, uh, I feel like our conversation flew by. Uh, I would love to have you on again as hopefully the podcast continues to grow and grow uh, so that you can share uh, more teachings and just really educate listeners. I think even today, anyone who listens to this episode, including myself, who was uh, involved in it, uh, walked away with more knowledge than I had before we spoke. And that is uh, just incredibly valuable. So thank you for that. And uh, I hope that you'll come on again and uh, you know, share more of your knowledge with us. Absolutely, Rachel. Thank you so much for the invitation. And I will be here whenever you need me. Be kind and truly connect. You're listening to Rachel Thexton Connects.